You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. We're looking in chapters 9 and 10 of the book of Ezra, so I want to invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you brought your Bibles with you. Or you can find a Bible in, uh, in the chair, under the chair of the row in front of you. I'll let you take some time to turn to Ezra chapter 9. I I cheated. My Bible has a bookmark. (laughs) But we'll read together all of Ezra 9, not all of Ezra 10, because the last part is a list of names that I don't think was fair that I would stand up here and just try to work through all of the pronunciation of all of those names. But we'll read through Ezra 9 and 10 together. Let's read in Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, these things being the return of Ezra and the priests and the Levites to Jerusalem and the ordering of temple worship in Jerusalem, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, me, this is Ezra, this is a first-person narrative, they said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled hair from my head and my beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed, and I blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, And our priests have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. 
Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of God, to repair its ruins, and to give protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments." which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace and eat the good or seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again? and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations. Would you not be so angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt For none can stand before you because of this. While Ezra prayed, now he turns to the the third person narrator. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise! For it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites in all Israel take an oath that they would do as has been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water For he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited. And he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month, on the twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. 
And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the peoples are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is it a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Josiah, the son of Tikva, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. And Ezra gives us a list of names of those priests. And down in 23, of the Levites. Ezra provides us a list of the names of those Levites that had married foreign women. And of Israel in verse 25. A list of the names of those men that had married foreign women. And Ezra concludes his narrative in verse 44. All these had married foreign women. And some of the women had even born children. This is God's word. Let us bow for a moment of prayer that God may enlighten our eyes and work in our hearts in a powerful way as we study it together. And our prayer this morning will draw heavily from Psalm 130. Let's pray. Out of the depths we cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear our voice. Let your ears be attentive to our pleas for mercy. O Lord, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Like the Israelites, our sins have piled up to the heavens. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We wait for you, O Lord. Our souls wait for you. In your word, we hope. We wait for you more than the watchman waits for the morning. God, our hope is in you. Our hope is in your steadfast love. Our hope is in your plentiful redemption. You, O Lord, will redeem your people from all their iniquities. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen. I must confess to you that in my preparations to preach this passage to you this morning, I was tempted to preach the entire sermon on one word. 
One solitary word in all that we just read, and we covered a lot of ground. That took about 10 minutes to read. There was two chapters there, about 1,500 words. But there was one word, one word that largely summarizes the entire passage that we just read. Or at the very least, it crystallizes those feelings of sorrow and dread that we experienced as we opened the passage in Ezra chapter 9. And that word you'll see as you look in verse 14 of, verse, of chapter 9. It's that word we see in verse 14, shall we break your commandments? Go ahead, circle it, underline it, highlight it again, again. Shall we break your commandments again? The way this word appears in the narrative we just read conveys all of the bitter feelings of remorse, shame, embarrassment. And we as the readers, both Christians and non-Christians alike, we are meant to resonate in ourselves when we know that we have failed again. I did it again. I went back on my word again. I lost my temper again. I betrayed my Savior again. Pastor Jonathan has led us in our study of the book of Ezra these last several weeks, and he's begun almost every sermon by asking this question. Where do you want or need to experience renewal? And this is a timely question for us. It's timely considering the harrowing season we currently endure. How everything is just a little bit harder. Everything takes a little bit more effort or more thought. You can't just walk into a building. You have to think, okay, before I go in, do I need to wear my face mask? You can't just book a trip. You have to think, okay, before I leave or before I come home, do I need a negative COVID test? And where do I get this test? To whom do I give the results? What if the results are positive? How long will I be gone? Everything is just a little bit harder. Everything takes more effort, and it's exhausting, it's draining, and it breeds anxieties. And we bring these anxieties when we ask these, this question, where do you want or need to experience renewal? We bring our anxieties to the book of Ezra, and we find comfort when we see that our sovereign God uses unexpected things and unusual people to accomplish his eternal plan. And purpose. God uses unexpected things like pagan, idol-worshiping kings to fulfill Jeremiah's prophecy that a remnant would return to Israel after God had sent them into exile as punishment for all of their faithlessness, for running, following after foreign gods, for turning away from him. God had punished his people, sent them into exile, but Jeremiah had prophesied that a remnant would return. And our sovereign God stirred in the heart of these foreign kings to send this remnant back to Jerusalem, to worship him alone. And we see in Ezra, and we will see in Nehemiah, how God also uses ordinary things, normal things, unexpected things, things, things that we would consider not exciting, not sexy. God, by his grace, prescribes ordinary things to give renewal to his people. And once again, to set them apart from the peoples of the lands and their idol-worshiping abominations. God, by his grace, prescribes these ordinary things like prayer, reading the Bible, corporate worship, to renew even the returned remnant and renew us today. And I want to juxtapose that word. I want to juxtapose that word renewal 
with the word that we called out earlier, again. And they kind of mean the same thing. They demonstrate a cycle, a continuation, a pattern. And I submit to you that Ezra, in these capstone chapters of his narrative, gives us both a retelling of the entire, a retelling and a foreshadowing of the entirety of the Bible, God's plans for redemption, as well as a description of the Christian life in miniature. I'm going to say that again because there's a lot. But in these final chapters of the book of Ezra, he gives us a summary and a foreshadowing of the entirety of the Bible, God's eternal plan for salvation, as well as a description of the Christian life in miniature. So for our time together this morning, we will approach the text in this way. In Ezra 9 and 10, we will see, one, the problem. Two, the reaction or repentance. One, being the problem being sin. Two, the reaction being repentance. Three, the action, faith. And four, the abrupt ending. The cycle continues. I want to move through these chapters together, and there's so much ground to cover, so I apologize. There will be a few things that we will only be able to cover briefly. There are some shocking elements to the passages that we just read, some things that make us scratch our heads and wonder if this passage is really useful or relevant for us today. But our aim is to make the main things, the plain things, to separate the descriptive the descriptive from the prescriptive, and to see how the unsatisfying end of Ezra's narrative points us to satisfaction in Jesus. So we begin with the problem. We begin in chapter 9, reading the first-person narrative of Ezra. Ezra has returned to Jerusalem and brought with him priests and Levites. And Ezra is a scribe. He's a student of God's law. Ezra introduces himself in chapter 7 and says, he quotes, he says in quotes, he was skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And his intent in returning to Jerusalem was to make sure, to ensure that Jewish society and temple worship were occurring in accordance with God's law. And the impression that we're given as we pick up chapter 9 is that it wasn't long before Ezra's preaching And teaching and administration exposed a serious violation of God's law. And that's that's really a point. I didn't make it a point in my sermon, but it really is a point. How the preaching of God's word exposes. Some biblical commentators estimate it was maybe about four or five months before Ezra's return that the sin became exposed. And the reason it probably took so long for Ezra to learn of this violation is that once he got back to Jerusalem, he probably traveled out to the surrounding cities and towns. So at first he was kind of a traveling messenger, but he no sooner got home, he no sooner set foot on the doorstep when the officials of the people of Jerusalem came to him and said, "Um, Ezra, Ezra, we have bad news. Ezra, we have bad news. You've been telling us that God's law says that we're not supposed to marry the foreign peoples of the lands. But Ezra, really, since we got back, since we returned from exile, a lot of us have been doing just that. And some of us, some of us were even the descendants of people who did just that. Now, this is one of those times in the Bible when we must pull back and understand what exactly is being described. What is this sin? Why is it a sin or a violation of God's law to marry foreigners? Well, first, as I mentioned earlier, One of the ways that Israel had sinned against God 
and had been unfaithful to him, and one of the reasons he punished them by sending them into exile was because they were intermingling with the foreign, idol-worshipping peoples of the surrounding lands. And God's law prohibited this. He prohibited this because it had so much to do with maintaining purity. And as we will see, the spirit of this purity had more to do with heart purity, not ethnic or racial purity, but religious purity, heart purity. As Pastor Jonathan has pointed out, God's people were meant to be a distinct people in a distinct place for a distinct purpose. They were supposed to be different. They were supposed to be pure. They were supposed to worship God alone. That was the that was behind the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So praying to other gods, little g gods, praying to statues, making sacrifices to these foreign gods, that is pagan, that is impure. And in God's presence, in God's command, in community, no impure thing can stand. No impure thing can exist. I wonder if we capture the gravity of impurity. I wonder if Christians have lost sight of the seriousness of sin. I don't have to wonder. I know we have because I know that I do. If you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, look, I understand your skepticism and I understand your criticism when you say you Christians don't seem to be all that different from everyone else. You seem to want to be liked. You seem to want to be respected. You want to fit in. And so you look and you talk like everyone else and sometimes, every now and again, you ask for forgiveness. And then, you Christians, sometimes when you remember that you are supposed to be different, you get really proud of yourselves because you don't look and you don't talk and you don't act like everyone else. You get really proud. You get really judgy. Sin is a big problem. Sin is the problem. Sin is our problem because sin is what separates us from God and, and God's desire for his people is this, then is the same desire as it is for his people today, that they be holy, that they be free from sin. So before God sent Jesus and thank God that he sent his son Jesus as our savior to accomplish all that he commands in the law. But before he did that, he graciously gave his people this law, a command to not marry the foreign peoples of the lands that surrounded them. And a brief overview of biblical history shows that God's commandment had more to do with rejecting the foreign influence of idolatry than it had to do with rejecting foreigners. We see this when we look at the genealogy of Jesus in the first chapter of Matthew. We can look there and we see two women who were not originally Israelites. Talk about God using unexpected, unusual people. In the genealogy of Jesus, there's two women who were not originally Israelites. There's one, Rahab, the Canaanite, and two, Ruth, the Moabite. In keeping with this review of biblical history to understand what it is God commanded, let's look back together at Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6, you can look there with me in your Bibles. This is verse 19. We read how the remnant kept the Passover, Ezra 6, 19 through 21. You can look there with me. It's on the screen as well. Ezra 6, 19. On the 14th day, the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together, all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by all the people 
of Israel who had returned from exile and, and this is what I want to emphasize, also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. I hope you understand. There have been those that have abused this passage and the command that it references to justify prohibitions against interracial marriage. And this is wrong. This is wrong on so many levels. But I'll just say this. When we read the Bible, we need to remember and ask ourselves what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. Okay? So what is descriptive of this passage that we are reading today is that it was a sin for the people to defile themselves with the impure idol worship of the foreigners that surrounded them, that they brought into and amongst God's people. And what is prescriptive is this. God hates sin. God cannot stand impurity. Worship of anything other than God is an abomination, and repentance is needed. We see this when we look at Ezra's reaction. Look at verse 3. As soon as I heard this, that is when Ezra had heard that the people had defiled themselves and the officials had married foreign women. As soon as I heard this, I tore my cloak and pulled hair from my head and from my beard and sat appalled. Ezra is terrified by this sin. And he makes a public scene to demonstrate to the people the seriousness of their sin. I can't imagine the pain of pulling hair from my face. I can't imagine the pain of pulling hair from my head, what little hair I have left. But the tearing of the garments was meant to show the tearing of Israel's faithfulness to God's commandments. They had broken faith. They were tearing away. And Ezra got up and he made it known. And what we see next is a picture of the posture of a leader of God's people. Ezra bows down to offer to God a prayer for his people. This prayer is reminiscent of Moses imploring God to not destroy the Israelites just as he's after he's delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh. In, in, in the Exodus God delivered the people. God delivered the Israelites from the heavy hand of Pharaoh and slavery from Egypt. He led them. He parted the sea. He parted the Red Sea and led the Israelites through on dry land. He delivered them from the heavy hand of Pharaoh and slavery. And just as Pharaoh and his horses and his riders were following the Israelites into the Red Sea, God swept the sea over them and destroyed the enemies of God's people. And not two seconds after the Israelites had been delivered, not two seconds after they rejoiced and said, thank you, God, for your deliverance, they said, man, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. My feet hurt. I'm tired. Moses, at least Pharaoh wasn't killing us. He was working us hard, but he wasn't killing us. You led us out in this wilderness to die. And it made God angry. And he had right to be angry. He had just delivered them. And he was about to destroy the Israelites. And Moses prayed to God and he said, God, don't destroy these people. You just delivered them. Be patient. Have mercy. I'm paraphrasing. And Ezra's prayer we see here is similar, right? But it's different. It's different. It's different because Ezra says, 
God, you have delivered your people. And we have sinned against you. And you ought to destroy us. You have every right. Every right to destroy us. This is repentance. And friends, this is prescriptive. If you are longing for renewal, if God's people are to experience renewal, there must be repentance. We see in this passage the value of corporate confession and how confession and repentance are integral. They are integral to our understanding of the gospel. In our gathered worship, we don't necessarily have a formal confession, but every part of our gathered worship includes some element of this corporate confession. In all of the songs that we sing, in all of the prayers that we pray, in all of the preaching that we hear, there is some element of this corporate confession, this acknowledgement that we have sinned. Just to pick a song, just to pick one of the songs that we sing, saying, I was far away in death and sin. I had no hope, no hope at all to live again. But then you came, you, Jesus, you drew me close in love, and you washed away my guilt and my filthy stains. Friends, we can't see grace as amazing until we realize the depths and the seriousness of our own sin. And so this is one of the two Basically, this is one of the basically two activities of the Christian life. This repentance, the other is faith, and we're going to get to that in a moment. We can look to Ezra here and see what it means to repent. We can witness before our eyes true repentance. See Ezra, face to the ground, hands outstretched, garments torn, saying to God, God, we have sinned, and your hatred of this sin is just. Ezra isn't making excuses. He's not sorry because the people got found out. He's grieved and he's sorry because the people have broken faith with their faithful God. They have violated God's commandments. And it's the offense to God in light of his incredible grace and faithfulness that grieves him more than anything. Maybe this is helpful to you as we dig into what it means to repent. An old catechism from the time of the Reformation has this question and answer. And I know sometimes catechisms can seem quite sterile, but if you just bear with me, put that aside, and consider the wisdom that may be found in this question and answer. I believe it's on the screen. Question and answer. Question, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Answer, two things. The dying away of the old self and the coming to life of the new. The rising to life of the new. Question, what is the dying away of the old self? Answer, to be genuinely sorry. Genuinely sorry for sin. To more and more hate, that's a strong word, hate. Hate and run away from it. If I may be so bold as to propose what I think is the next logical question and answer. Question, Where then shall we run? Answer, into the arms of Jesus. I'm going to quote another song because it says it so much better than I can say it myself. These are the words of Joseph Hart and his song, Come Ye Sinners. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. 
Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. That is, don't hold back until you feel like you're ready. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need for him. Friend, have you felt your need for Jesus? Do you, like Ezra, see your offense to your sin as an offense to a gracious God? Do you come before God and say, God, all I bring to you is my sin. I need you. I need Jesus. Good. That's all he requires. I'm going to hammer on this because our default mode as people is to seek out religiosity and things that we can do to justify ourselves. We are addicted to good advice. But one of the things I hope makes the gathered worship of the people who are Connection Church different is that we stay away. We don't deal in good advice. We deal in good news. Why would we do that? Why wouldn't we get more practical? Why would we come week after week, year in, year out, to hear the same message? Well, why? Just look at the, the verses we began with this morning. Just look at the verses we began with this morning, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 9. Ezra recounts God's faithfulness, the people's faithlessness, and God's justice to punish the remnant for their sin. And you can hear the agony in his voice. Shall we break your commandments again? Friends, you're never in a more dangerous place than when you forget your need for grace. The story of the entire Bible, the entire story of redemption is this, grace given, grace enjoyed, grace betrayed. Grace given, grace enjoyed, grace betrayed. You see this, at this at, from the beginning to the end of the Bible. God creates the world. He exists in perfect fellowship, needs nothing, in perfect fellowship with the Trinity, and he creates out of nothing. This is grace given. Adam enjoys perfect fellowship with God. He sins sinlessness. This is grace enjoyed. But then Adam and Eve sin. They betray God. Grace betrayed. But the story is not over. God makes the first sacrifice. He kills an animal and clothes and protects Adam and Eve. Grace given and so on and so on and so on. From the moment you wake up till the moment you go to bed, it's grace. From the beginning of your life to the end of your life, it's grace. Grace has brought you safe thus far and grace will lead you home. Friends, we need the message of grace in season and out of season because there are no gospel prodigies. We never outgrow our need for grace. We even see this when we read further and we, we look further in the passage in Ezra and the actions of Ezra, looking specifically now at verse 6. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. In those verses that we just read and elsewhere throughout the book, we see how Ezra invokes several spiritual disciplines for the purpose of discernment and godly leadership. And this is the action, this is faith. What do we see Ezra doing after his prayer of confession and repentance? We see him seeking solitude, fasting, praying, reading God's word. And at the beginning of chapter 10, we see him seeking and receiving godly wisdom from Shechaniah. These are all spiritual disciplines. And you might think to yourself, wait a minute, you just, you just spent all this time talking about our utter reliance, our dependence on grace. All we need to do is rely on God's grace, receive God's grace, and now you're talking about taking action. Now you're talking about all these spiritual disciplines. What is going on? 
Well, let me be clear. Our actions taken in faith and the spiritual disciplines do not negate our utter reliance on grace. They don't take that away. No, the actions we take in faith are not meant to get something from God. It's not a quid pro quo. The actions we take in faith are meant to experience more of his grace. Prayer is not something we do to give God our wish list or our to-do list. Prayer is the way our hearts are attuned to his will. This is a gift of grace. We don't read the Bible to do something to make God proud of us. Reading the Bible is one of the things God uses to to make us transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is a gift of grace. Fasting is not something we do to win God's favor. Fasting is how we can be reminded of how God supplies our every need. And this is a gift of grace. All of these actions and all of these disciplines are gifts of grace to experience more grace, to experience more of Jesus. So again, what we have read is now prescriptive. If you're longing for renewal, if God's people are to experience renewal, there must be faith. There must be action. But the action we see now as we conclude our study in the book of Ezra makes for an abrupt ending. We read in chapter 10 this account of God's people gathered together in the cold and the rain. They're huddled there together, trembling because they know they have sinned, trembling because of the cold. They can barely endure the elements. And we witness a shocking, maybe a troubling scene. Ezra tells the people that they must separate themselves from the peoples of the land and their foreign wives. And if you're wondering if God's word just said what you think it said, you're right. This means divorce and child abandonment. Another pastor put it so well when he said, you can see the seriousness of the sin when we see the seriousness of the consequence. The God who hates divorce in this situation commands divorce. And again, we must ask ourselves, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Well, it doesn't take a very deep search, a very deep dive into the rest of biblical history or the rest of the Bible to understand that this is, this is descriptive. It is describing a specific action at a specific place in a specific time. It's not prescriptive for us in the life of faith. But there are still some important takeaways for us to consider. Consider the first the painful consequence of sin. Sin always has consequences. And in that case, the first consequence, and the, the consequences that we see in this chapter, this, they are brutal. Whenever we are tempted to minimize sin, to minimize impurity, we overlook the devastating effects of sin in our world. Sin breaks down relationships. You can see it here. It destroys families. Sin always leaves a mess. We consider also the painful cost of pruning and refining. We look to Ezra and to Nehemiah to, to see the, word, the ways that God brings renewal for his people. And he does it by removing impurity. And that's costly. It hurts. Winnowing and pruning is always painful to whatever is being winnowed or pruned, but it's done for the purposes of purity. God's holiness demands the purity of his people. Anything impure needed to be rejected outside the camp, 
And that's exactly what we see happen to these peoples of the lands and their foreign wives. They were cast outside the camp. They were rejected from God's holy community and were left with a very unsatisfying end to the narrative of Ezra. But could it be? Could it be that we're meant to be left with this unsatisfying ending so that we could look to the satisfaction that is found in Jesus? Jesus who bore the curse of sin in his own body to deal with the, the problem of sin and pay the penalty for sin once and for all. Jesus who was made now, now makes intercession. He prays day and night for his people to present them holy and blameless to God. Jesus, who was cast outside the camp and shed his own blood to redeem and bring back through faith those, who's like, those who were sinful idolaters like you and me that would have otherwise been cast out forever. The end of Ezra, the end of his narrative is abrupt. It's unsatisfying, yes, but it demonstrates the never-ending need for grace. It demonstrates our never-ending need for Jesus. And friends, this is good news because Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Let's look to him in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you are our redeemer. We praise you that you fully paid the penalty for all our sin. We thank you that you were cast outside the camp and that so through faith in your shed blood, we who were sinful idolaters could be brought back in. All we bring to you is our need for you. We look to you out of our sin and we praise you that your grace will grant us forgiveness. Grant us renewal again and again. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. Help us to remember day after day our never-ending need for grace and point us to Jesus from whose fullness we have received grace upon grace. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.